Hey, everybody. Welcome to Sunday School, a new Bible study podcast presented by The Pillar. I'm your host, J.D. Flynn, and I am joined by my good friend, Dr. Scott Powell, to talk about the Gospel of Mark. In this episode, Scott will talk about Mark chapters 1 and 2. We will learn together about Jesus' baptism, the temptation in the wilderness, and something called the Messianic Secret. But before we get started, we asked Pillar co-founder Ed Condon to record the readings for each episode to help you better engage with Scott's commentary. If you've already done the readings, you could skip ahead to about 8.45 in this podcast. But if you haven't, here's Ed with Mark chapters 1 and 2. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness, and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him, and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair, and wore a leather belt around his waist, and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open, and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, For he taught them as one who had authority, and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent, and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him, and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching, and with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue, and entered the house of Simon and Andrew, with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand, and lifted her up, and the fever left her and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, 
and the whole city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases, and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak, because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him, and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him, and sent him away at once, and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it, and to spread the news, so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. Many were gathered together, so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them, and they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like this? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they had thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose, and immediately picked up his bed, and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed, and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd were coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who have followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners." Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth onto an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, and the new from the old, and the worse the tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. 
If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. One Sabbath he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did, when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abithar the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him? And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And so the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. So I want to start just chapter one, verse one, and a couple words about the, I love the way that Mark begins. And I want to pose a problem of Jesus Christ, the son of God. Keep going. As it is written in Isaiah, the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face who shall prepare your way. All right. Pause there. seems like a strange place to pause, but there's a, there's a good reason for this. This is, I'm going to point to one of the reasons that scholars have sometimes criticized Mark. I think falsely so. If you read what just happened here, now you've got a good little study Bible in front of you. Right? Yeah, I'm using the Ignatius study Bible. I am too. I love my Ignatius study Bible. So if, if you at home, if you have uh, it, it, whatever Bible you use, um, you might notice that there's a bunch of places kind of at the bottom of the, of the page that have little references. So you can look up a passage in a verse and then down below, you'll see a bunch of other passages and verses. Which are the corresponding. Which are the corresponding. So, so where did this... So, Mark, for instance, quotes the Old Testament. You mm-hmm. can go down below and be like, oh, chapter 1, verse 2, where's that coming from? And you can find out where in the Old Testament that's from. So here's where the problem comes. It says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written Isaiah the prophet, like you said, behold, I send my messenger before thy face, who shall prepare thy way? That is one quote. And if you look down at your little footnote, where does that quote come from? Malachi 3, one. Do you see the problem? The problem is that Isaiah isn't Malachi. The problem, yeah, the problem is Isaiah isn't Malachi. And scholars love to rip this one apart. Sure. They're like, wait a second. You just said, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, and then you quoted Malachi. Right. And then the next line in verse 3, he does go on to quote Isaiah 40. So he eventually gets there. But what I read, behold, I send my messenger before your face who shall prepare your way. That's, That's from, from Malachi. the book of Malachi. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And so scholars like to say, well, this is, this is an error, right? Here's uh-huh. a discrepancy. So I want to propose two things to you. And I, I don't, I'm not trying to get we, uh, down in the weeds of, of Old Testament interpretation or footnoting, but I think this is interesting. So the Gospels were originally written in what's called Koine Greek. Uh-huh. And Koine means common. It was mm-hmm. commoner's Greek, which is different than like the Plato or Aristotle or Socrates Greek. That's sure. classical Greek. Koine was the the peasants' Greek. And the tongue I, of the Roman Empire, right? The lingua franca of the, of the Roman Empire. It was, Empire, right? ironically enough, which wasn't Latin. Right. The or higher French, ups spoke Latin or French. Yes, it wasn't French. I mean, what kind of lingua franca are we, is that? That's a fair question. Okay. Yeah, that's a fair question. So the higher ups spoke... But it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a carryover from the Greek Empire. Sure. Because mm-hmm. the, Greek, the Greeks were big on Hellenizing the whole region. And so Rome was like, well, why are we going to make them... Learn, learn a new. whole new language because everybody speaks. It's it's uh, this. There's something theologically beautiful about the fact that Jesus decides to come among us, become incarnate as a human being, at the precise moment in human history when almost the entire known world is speaking one unified language. Yeah, that's remarkable. Yeah, and that the Roman Empire had just literally finished uh, building thousands upon thousands of miles of roads. That all of a sudden Jesus shows up and the gospel has 
a route to go on. Right. It not ex- you know there are other parts of the world that are speaking other languages, but it, it's interesting that God chooses that moment. Yeah. But anyway, that being said, um, so in Koine Greek, there's no punctuation, mm. which makes it ridiculously difficult to read. If you're going through a scroll, there's also no spaces between the words. Oh. And so if you were looking at original Koine Greek scroll, it would be all of these you know this jumble of letters and words with no spaces, no periods, no commas. I know people who text like that. And it's yeah, like, I don't it's, that's to that's you. the new modus operandi. Right. That don't get into that. But okay, that being said, so if that's the case, so all of sacred scripture is inspired by God and without error. The punctuation in our English translations could be up for interpretation. Okay, there could be a period because languages are different, and sometimes oh, yeah. languages don't capture the total meaning or sense of another language. Sure. So the reason I point that out is I wonder. It makes me wonder. What if you could read that passage, verse one and two, in two different ways grammatically? And what if you took out the period after son of God, all of a sudden it would read differently. And you would have a passage that said the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God, as it is written in Isaiah, the prophet period. Oh, because what Mark's going to do, although I mentioned he's, he's not writing primarily to a Jewish audience. He will lean heavily on the book of Isaiah Uh and the fathers of the church love to call Isaiah the fifth gospel Uh because it was so chock full of prophecies about the Messiah. Mark, you really do get the sense if you read the rest of the book, he frames the whole gospel on Isaiah uh-huh. and on unpacking what this is. So I think you could make an argument that he's saying, no, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ according to Isaiah. Let me show you how. And so then what he does is he brings together actually the last of the Old Testament prophets, which is Malachi. And Malachi is not just the last written Old Testament prophet in the Bible, But it's the last word that God spoke to his people before there were hundreds of years of silence, before the people of Israel fell into this really profound darkness. There's other books of the Bible. We have Maccabees after that. But if you read Maccabees, which I love, God never speaks in Maccabees. They do things in God's name and and trying to follow him. But there's no word from God in that book. The last word God speaks is at the end of the the book of Malachi, Mm. which would have been, I don't know, a couple hundred years prior to this. So he quotes that, and then he bookends it with the first written gospel of Isaiah. Uh-huh. And he takes these two kind of bookends. Is Isaiah the first prophet to be writing of the major prophets of Scripture? He's the first one that shows up in the text. Okay. He's not... He's messianic in a new way. He's messianic in a new way, okay. yeah, certainly. I think he's not the first prophet because there are uh, prophets to the northern kingdom that I, I believe okay. predate him, like maybe Amos and some others. But... But so I, I don't don't read too much into that, but okay. it's it's um, literarily interesting yeah. that he kind of arranges it that way. But what he's doing, there's a common rabbinic technique of trying to explain something by pointing out a couple of different passages and subordinating one to the other uh-huh. or subordinating one, a number of them to something else, uh-huh. which I think is what he's doing here. So, OK, what, what's the point of all this? Um, the two passages that he actually quotes are significant. So behold, I send my messenger before thy face who will prepare thy way. So first of all, we got we got to turn back to Malachi because uh-huh. this is too good. So I'm going to flip back to Malachi real quick. And if you want to, you know, if you're driving, please don't turn your Bibles to Malachi. But it comes from the very end of the of the book of Malachi, which um, in most of your Bibles it should be toward the very very end of the Old Testament. It's the last written book. And Malachi in chapter three says this. Now the context of Malachi, real quick, there, there was uh, something called the Babylonian exile. Um, a couple hundred years prior to Jesus, um, Israel was in a very dark place. They were taken off into slavery and exile by a nation called Babylon, who destroyed the temple, wiped out Jerusalem, and took everybody into exile. 
number of years later, they were allowed to return home, those who were left, the survivors, and to rebuild Jerusalem. This is where the Bob Marley song by the Rivers of Babylon comes from, which is one of my favorite Bob Marley songs. But uh, they come back to Jerusalem and they begin to rebuild. Um, Jerusalem has no infrastructure. There's no houses. There's no stores. And so people are desperately trying to rebuild and put their lives back together. There are a handful of prophets, Malachi included, who are desperately trying to get people to prioritize the rebuilding of the temple. And they say, look, we've got to rebuild God's house. Um, Back in the book of Ezekiel, prior to the Babylonians destroying it, Ezekiel had a vision of God's presence leaving the temple. Mm -hmm. And he saw the presence of God, the the glory cloud, leave the east gates of the temple, take off across the Kidron Valley and go to the Mount of Olives. And when he saw that, I mean, you can imagine, at the time, everyone was thinking to themselves, well, Babylon can't destroy us. Like, nobody's going to take us down. We've got God in that house up on the hill. Like, we're unstoppable. We're fine. Which they had made the temple into an idol. This is what Jeremiah is railing against. You've made the house of God into a den of robbers and thieves because you've idolized the building and made it something that it's not. Mm. Um, Ezekiel sees God's presence literally jet out of the temple and his response is, oh no, (laughs) that's not good. And then after God's presence leaves, the temple's destroyed, they're sacked, everyone's taken off in exile, which leads to the very real theological problem of Israel saying to themselves, God has abandoned us. He has left us, which, by the way, is why at the very, very beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, when the angel Gabriel appears to Mary and says she's going to have a son, what what does Gabriel say only in Matthew that his name will be? Emmanuel. God God is with us, which is an answer to this old question, is God actually with us or not? Because he sure doesn't seem like he is. So in the time of Malachi, they've come back. They're back in the land. They're trying to get things back to normal. But Malachi is trying to convince them you've got to build the temple. And it's, it's, this is stupid, but I always call it the th- field of dreams theology is that if you build it, he will come. So God's mm-hmm. not with us. God abandoned us. He turned his back on us. We don't even have houses yet for Pete's sake. Right. Why should we worry about the temple? Right. Why should we care about him? Why should we care about, about that? And Malachi says, well, if you rebuild the temple, it will be your sign to God that you're ready for him to come mm-hmm. back, that you're, that you're, you're ready to turn back and, and prepare yourselves. It's, it's, it's almost Lenten in, in its sense of you've got to show and demonstrate to God that you're ready to, yeah. to do this. And so in that context, in that light, what Malachi says, I'm reading from chapter three, verse one, behold, rebuild the temple because I will send my messenger to prepare the way before me. And then the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? So in other words, rebuild the temple because at some point he's going to come back. And when he does, there will be a messenger to prepare the way before him. He's giving this prophecy of this future time when God will come back and there will be a messenger to prepare his way. So Mark is referencing this because he wants it to put us in that place of here comes the return of the Lord. Yes, but then he wants to subordinate that to Isaiah. Uh So let me read that really quick. So if you flip to Isaiah, and again, if you're driving, don't do it. But Isaiah chapter 40. So Isaiah, super, super quick crash course. Isaiah can be easily divided into two halves. There's the bad news and there's the good news. The bad news is... The people of God has really blown it. They've, they've strayed from the covenant. They've turned their back on God. They've worshiped idols. They've done all sorts of terrible things. There's going to be punishment. In other words, the Babylons are going to come. Uh-huh. Things are going to happen. But then in chapter 40, so 1 through 39 is the bad news. Then chapter 40 through 66 is the good news. Uh-huh. So in other words, after the punishment, which is inevitable, God's going to restore you. You're going to be, it's called the book of comfort. And so what Mark quotes from is the very beginning of the book of comfort. Mm. And it's called that because it begins in chapter 40, verse 1 by saying, 
Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Cry to her that her warfare has ended, uh, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double from all her sins. This is what the people in Jesus' time are wondering about. When will this comfort come? When will we receive pardon from our sin? Uh-huh. Everybody in Jesus' time, even though they got to come back to their home and Jerusalem and resettle the promised land years before, everybody still feels in exile. Why? Because there's still an empire called Rome who's lording over us. We still don't have a Davidic king. There's this guy named Herod who paid enough money to Caesar to be put there as a puppet regime. We don't have the land. We don't control it. The Lord's not in the tabernacle anymore. The presence of God has not come back. When will things be set right? So I bet everybody had Isaiah 40 on their hearts and on their lips at the time. But then he says, verse 3, a voice cries. In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every highway, every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain and hill made low. Uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh will see it together. So he gives you these two passages. These two expectant passages about not merely here's the coming of the Messiah. Uh Here's the moment that God comes back. He tells you what's going to come before the Lord comes back. Uh There's going to be a messenger and there's going to be a voice. And this messenger is going to say, prepare the way. The voice will say, make straight the roads. Actually, the the Isaiah 40 passage sounds like highway construction. You know, bring down the mountains, bring up the valleys, level the the things. It's it's highway construction. But the illusion, it seems to me, tell me if I'm getting... Yeah, please. If I wanted to, let's say I were a politician in America today and I wanted to like sort of say, I'm going to be this guy who's going to bring... The, the American ideals to yeah. a new thing, then I might sort of start my speeches with like when in the course of human events or something like that totally. in order to make this allusion to all of our founding narratives so totally. that people would associate, this is what's happening here. Yeah. Nobody okay. nobody will understand you anymore because we're... Right, no one would know what it is. lost our sense of but story. Our, but our yes. listeners, the pillar the pillar <laughs> well, yeah, listeners they're would understand different, they're different if I start game. with that or if I yeah. sort of pepper yes, my speeches absolutely. with a new birth of freedom or oh, four absolutely. scores of people understand I'm... Putting myself in that lineage. Absolutely. And that's right. what's happening here. Is this You're evoking something. Right. You're evoking a, 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 whole, a whole ethos, mm-hmm. a feeling of something. Absolutely yeah. right. Okay. So he does all that. He, he calls to mind. This is why, I mean, I wonder if Mark might be written to a community that's more catechized than even Matthew's community. Mm. Because he doesn't have to lay it out. He just will throw out passages and understand that you're going to get the reference and you're going mm-hmm. to understand the narrative without me having to go into details. Yeah. He doesn't really give you the on-ramp of, you know, John's beautiful prologue or Matthew's genealogy or Luke's birth narratives. He just literally drops you into the middle of the highway. John the and he Baptist says, John the appeared. Baptist appeared in the wilderness. Mm-hmm. But what has he just done? He, doesn't, he didn't just drop you in. He said, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness. But what he just did was talk about a messenger who is coming and a voice crying in the wilderness. And so Mark wants you to do some mathematics. Oh, there's a messenger and a voice. And now all of a sudden there's John. Oh, John is... Right. The messenger and the voice. Mm-hmm. He is what the last and the first prophets were all calling our attention to. We've mm. been waiting and wondering and longing for this moment that this is all going to happen. Oh, it's that guy. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness. What is he doing? Ba- preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And he said, there went out to him all the country of Judea and the people of Jerusalem. And, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan. And you said sins. that Isaiah passage referenced a time when Israel was really wondering, how will we attain the forgiveness of our sins Absolutely again? right. So even that, this forgiveness of a sins, it's like this is a kind of an expression of what you've been waiting for. Is that right? Uh, no, actually. Well, maybe, yes and no. Okay. So what John is doing, a lot of people wonder about this. I wondered about this for a long time. What John is doing, 
obviously know this, John's not doing a sacramental baptism because Jesus hasn't shown up yet. Right. And so what John is doing, and I don't mean this in a pejorative sense, what John is doing is, is more akin to what a lot of our Protestant friends think of as baptism, which is, an outward sign of an inward a reality. public profession of yeah, my a repentance. public profession of my repentance, but not something that's efficacious. In exactly right. Way. And I don't think John thinks it is, uh-huh. but that's and this was John wasn't the only one doing stuff like this. This was um, a tradition that was around. I mean, it goes back to the mikvah baths, you know, in the in the temple and the synagogues that there was purification, washing symbolism that was was an outward sign of I want to repent, I want to do better. They're preparing themselves for the coming of what Isaiah 40 is talking about. What you said, I think, is really helpful for just kind of even thinking about what Israel in, the, in Jesus' time would have been like. Because mm-hmm. I think it's easy to forget, to, to forget or not think about the fact that there are all kinds of like religious figures running around at that time you know, yeah. who are kind yeah. of moving along some of the same trajectories and, and things like that. Yeah, that's a really important point. And that's one of the things that I think comes out as the story goes on. We're... we're even if you if you even if you're not religious, I think this is one of the most interesting historical moments because what you have there there's a number of prophecies Isaiah to some degree, but there's others from the book of Daniel, for example, that that seem to point in a pretty explicit way as to exactly when the Messiah was going to come. So everyone was asking, you know, when is the Messiah coming? Daniel gives some some pretty um, solid time frames. No one's ex- no one was exactly. It, it really is the sense of. Nobody knew the day or the hour that the Messiah was going to mm-hmm. come, but everyone knew about the time. There's mm-hmm. prophecies that talk about it being, I think you could say, in the reign of the Roman Empire. Okay. There's prophesies about you know the, the span of a few decades when it will probably happen, which means that in the time of Jesus, there were hundreds of people claiming to be Messiah. Wow. There's a glut of would-be Messiahs that yeah. weren't there you know, 100 years prior or weren't there you know, shortly thereafter, because uh-huh. everybody kind of knew when they were expecting the Messiah to come. Yeah. False messiahs was not a perennial problem in, in Israel. So it's know? like around the year 2000, there were tons of sort of end yes. of world predictors. Absolutely right. Like, okay. Because everyone was like, ooh, this, this thing's going to happen. Time. Y2K, yeah. baby. Right. Yeah. That's exactly what's going on, which, which is interesting. And again, as we get further down the road into the Gospel of Mark, one of the things that's fascinating about Jesus is that as a messiah, he doesn't tend to have all that much success in an earthly sense, mm-hmm. right? And even in the Gospels themselves, there's no moment in the Gospels that Jesus... So I'm thinking back to the Gospel of Matthew when, when he gives the parable about the sower. Remember this? When he says the sower went out to sow and you know some of the seed fell on rocky ground, some on the you know got burned up on the path right. and some birds ate it. it. Which is a metaphor, of course, for the Gospel itself. It's what Jesus is doing. He's sowing the seeds of the Gospel and it keeps getting scorched or choked or yeah. eaten up and spit out. You know, it, It's never being accepted. And there's no moment in the Gospel that it really takes... Even as the Gospels end, for the most part, the disciples, they're like, oh, we believe it, but we're going to go hide in this room and lock the door. Yeah. <laughs> like, the end. And it never really feels like it bears fruit until Acts of the Apostles, which something new happens. And we can talk about that later. But but it's an important way to read the Gospel because Jesus was one of a number of different options uh-huh. if you wanted to follow a Messiah. Uh-huh. And the vast majority of these would be, by the way, a side note, everyone knew the Messiah was coming. No one expected the Messiah to be God. Uh-huh. And we can read back in 2,000 years of Christian hindsight and look at the prophets and be like, oh, of course it was God. But, you know, when you're in the middle of it or beforehand, it, yeah. it wasn't clear. They thought the Messiah was going to be like a King David or like yeah. a Moses to lead us out of slavery or uh-huh. Joshua or something like that. And so there were a lot of people that 
I'm sure there were a lot of charlatans. I'm sure there were people trying to manipulate other people. But there were probably well-intentioned people thinking, maybe I'm the Messiah. Yeah, maybe yeah. God has called me to lead our generation to do these things. I think that probably three or four times a week. That's actually, why I brought right? it up. That's why I saw it in your eyes. It's Jamie's right? admonishment time, right? Exactly. <laughs> You're not. But all of their messages were, let's destroy the enemy. Let's mm-hmm. take down Rome. Because the only way that God's kingdom will come back is if the pagan oppressors are gone. So let's take up arms, let's gather weapons, and let's fight. Let's go after them. And then you have Jesus. So if you... Because coming back to Mark, that's not the Jesus of the first two chapters. It's of the not the Jesus part. of the first two chapters. And so even interestingly enough, if you wanted to find a Messiah to follow, if you're like, I'm in the market for the or Messiah to follow, where would you go? You would go to the hill slopes in Galilee mm-hmm. because there were all these dry desert wadis. It was easy to hide out. It was easy to hide weapons. This is where... Uh, King David was on the run from King Saul right. from, for decades. It's a really great place to hide. So if you wanted to go find a Messiah to follow or a would-be revolutionary, you'd go to the hillsides of oh, Galilee. Oh, but it's, a mil- it's not like they're going to Taos or something like that. It's a military. <laughs> yes. Okay. Exactly. And it's where you would, and I'm sure, you know, when Jesus is given the Sermon on the Mount, I'm sure there's somebody on the next hill over saying, if you follow me, you know, we're going to, I'm going to make everybody rich and powerful and we're going to take down Caesar. And then you get to Jesus and he's like, I want you to forgive your enemies and uh-huh. pray for those who persecute you. Which is not, you know, be nice to the guy at work who's annoying to you. Right. It's, oh, the Romans who are slaughtering you and overtaxing you and have stolen all of your land and your authority and are oppressing you. Love them and forgive them. There was, right. a, there was a law on the books in the Roman Empire where if a Roman soldier could force you, by, they could pull you off the street and force you by law to carry their bag for one mile. Which is why when Jesus says, hey, if somebody forces you to go with them for one mile, go for two. Yeah. Like most of these things have everyday references for us. Sure. We're like, oh, I can love my enemies. I can for you. Somebody, specific. I felt like I got slapped in the face. You know, I can, yeah. I can give them another chance, blah, blah, blah. But nobody really forces me to walk with them for one mile. Right. But in the ancient world, like that's a law. Yeah. He says, so go for another mile. Can yeah. you imagine what the response of a Roman centurion would be yeah, the if they dragged you yeah. and you're like, I'll take it for another one. Yeah. Oh, and here's my cloak as well. Yeah. By the way. A kind of, there's a kind of middle finger in there that is not um, well, easily you can, seen. You could take it as a middle finger or you could take it from what Mark's telling of it. And in the Gospel of Mark, which remember is written to Romans, who's the first person in the Gospel of Mark to profess Jesus Christ? On the cross. It's a Roman centurion. Right. And I always wonder, I mean, we don't know. We don't know what the spirit is doing inside of this Roman centurion. But what if he had some experience of some follower of Jesus mm. who was like, I'll walk with you for a second mile. And the, yes, the audacity, but also the, who are you? Yeah. Why, why would you do that? Yeah. That began to work in him somehow so yeah. that the grace was ready when he saw Jesus crucified. But he yeah. said, oh. I don't know. I don't think that's coincidental, but it shows that there's lots of options. John is a different matter, though. There's lots of options for messiahs. There were few options for the voice and the messenger. Mm. I'm sure there were others probably doing what John was doing, but we don't know. I actually don't know of any. We have records of other messiahs or would be messiahs. I don't know of that many other John options, because if you're living in this time period, you want to be the messiah. I don't think there's all that many people that are like, I want to be the voice. I want to be the one who gets it ready. Right. Which John the Baptist shows up and does this. The other thing that the book of Malachi says, almost at its closing, is so it tells you all these things that will happen. But then it closes by saying, and if you want to watch for the Messiah, if you want to see the Messiah's arrival, look for Elijah. Because Elijah will come first. Mm. Then you have John the Baptist, who if you keep reading, as he is baptizing, he was clothed with camel's hair. This is chapter 1, verse 6. 
had a leather belt around his waist, ate locusts and wild honey. Is it's that a allusion? Direct, are those allusions to Elijah? Direct allusion to Elijah. It's okay. from Second Kings. There should be a, a footnote in some of our Bibles. Yeah, Second Kings chapter one verse eight. So it'd of be the like dress of Elijah again to kind of be like if I were like, oh, this uh, Scott were wearing. Um, uh, a stovepipe hat and a black. It would be like, oh, I, was wondering I know this what you were going to use. Yeah, yeah, yeah. right. No, no, that's right. Like Scott had wooden teeth. You'd be like, oh, I know, right? So there's that exactly. kind of okay. Which is why everybody is flocking to him mm-hmm. because when we know enough to know the people in Judea and Jerusalem. There's some, there's some fairly hardened religious leaders out there, and there's yeah. some Pharisees who, who have no patience for Jesus, but they seem to have the patience for John because I don't know that there's that many people looking like Elijah in the wilderness, crying out to prepare the way. Yeah. And everyone says, oh, we remember those passages. We know the, the script. We yeah. should listen to this guy. Yeah. And so that's where we, we kind of show up. So then we get to the baptism, verse 9. So it says, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Again, classic Mark, if you re- if you know the gospel of John at all, John spends like a chapter and a half on like just John's emotions when he saw Jesus right. walking up. Right. Mark has no time for that. He's like, Jesus came, he got baptized. Cool. And it says, then he came up out of the water and immediately, there's that immediately again, right? Immediately he saw the heavens opened and the spirit descending upon him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. I really want, I won't, but I really want to get bogged down in the the big theological question of why does Jesus need to be baptized, Uh which is a very interesting question because sacramentally, of course, baptism cleanses us from our sins. It's incorporation into Jesus's own identity. Right. So why does Jesus need to do it? Right. Which is, there's been lots of answers given to that or suggestions. Um, The solidarity with us, he teaches us, Mm. you know, the way to go and all these things. Uh, There's a quote from a saint, a a very, not very well-known saint, St. Maximus of Turin. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you're familiar with him. Totally. He has my, (laughs) he has my favorite uh, quote on this. And he says this, he says, the Lord Jesus came to baptism and willed to have his holy body washed with water. Perhaps someone like Scott will say, why did he who is holy want to be baptized? Listen then, Christ is baptized, not that he may be sanctified, but that in the waters, but that he himself may sanctify the waters Mm. and purify by his own purification the streams he touches. For when the Savior is washed, then all water is cleansed for our baptism and the font is purified Mm. so that the grace of the washing may be administered to the peoples who would come after. I think that's a a cool idea that Jesus blesses the water and sacramentalizes them so that they're fitting for baptism. Yeah. Again, there's lots more we could say about that, but it's just an interesting little side note. But the thing I want to uh, drive us to is um, this moment. So the moment of the baptism, and again, Mark is, is sparse on his details, but what he says is pretty important. And so Jesus comes up out of the water and what happens? He says, immediately he saw the heavens opened. And this is my favorite Greek word. It's the word schizo which is where we get schizophrenic or schism. Um, those are the only two I can think of. But, a dividing. Yeah, dividing. So, But it's not the word for to open. If I was going to open the door, uh-huh. I, that's not the Greek word I would use. It Literally, it's a violent tearing or mm. shredding, yeah. which is why a schism is called a schism. It's not just a simple division or right. something. I mean, it's a, it's a violence done to the, the, to the people of God. Yeah. Um, uh, so what the heavens do is they rip open. This is mm. not what the other gospels say. They don't use this word. Only Mark uses this word. The heavens were schizoed 
And the spirit, what does it say? The spirit descended upon him like a dove. A voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son with whom I am well, or with you I am well pleased. This is the first time in the scriptures, uh, other than Matthew, where the whole Trinity is explicitly present, Mm. which is kind of cool. You have Jesus, the son in the water, God, the father speaking from the heaven and the Holy Spirit in the form of the dove descending upon him. Um, But this scene is repeated later on. And this is, I think, what, what, one of the pieces of brilliance of what Mark is doing. This scene, um, at least in some semblance, is echoed. I'm not going to say repeated. It's echoed at the end of the gospel. And only Mark kind of tells the story this way. So at the end of the gospel, when Jesus is being crucified mm-hmm. and he's hanging on the cross, right as he breathes his last, what it says is he breathed out his spirit. So here we have the spirit coming upon him. There the spirit is departing from him. And if you remember what happens in Mark, so he breathes out the spirit. The temple uh, veil is what? Schizo. It's the only other time that word shows up. Cool. Um, do you know what was on the temple veil? A, a, a tapestry of the sky? Yeah. So the temple was all built to be a microcosm of all of creation. Uh-huh. Pools of water were meant to represent the oceans. And there was, you know, this is where we get in our churches, you know, the little flowers and leaves and things that are kind of meant to be etched into parts of it. It all comes from the temple, which was mm. supposed to be like Eden. Mm-hmm. And so in all of the aspects of creation, the veil, which separated the Holy of Holies, the presence of God from the outer courts, was um, a star chart, basically the heavens. And so at the end of Jesus' life, the heavens, what, are schizoed again as the spirit departs from him. And who do you have present? This is what I find really fascinating about Mark. So all these things are taking place. And there are a number of people that were kind of interacting with Jesus on the cross. But only Mark points out that as Jesus breathes out his last and cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's some rando that's like, oh, he's calling Elijah, (laughs) which is not true. In any way, shape, or form. Right. But it's like Mark had to get Elijah in there because yeah. he wanted to recast this scene. Uh-huh. And he wanted the baptism scene to what? Reappear as the crucifixion. Uh-huh. Why? Because what he's trying to remind a, a community who is being persecuted and facing down death is that your baptism is in a very real way what pledges you to the cross. Yeah. And Jesus even says later on as he's on his way down to Jerusalem and later on in Mark that, are you prepared to be baptized with the kind of baptism with which I will be baptized? Yeah, right. Which sounds like a really bummer of a news, but in the same sense, if you are a baptized Christian being persecuted, wondering to yourself, man, did I follow the wrong guy? Did I put my money in the wrong pot? And you're reminded, no, this is what baptism is, is. but you yeah. also know the other side of it. You also know the victory of the yeah. cross. Then it's to, meant to be a comfort when you're in the middle of persecution. This is what my baptism pledged me to. So immediately after the baptism, and again, this is, I I use Mark's use of immediately, which he does in chapter one, verse 12. um, It says the, the spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. Now I love this scene. So this is the famous temptation in the wilderness where he's out there for 40 days. Mark Uh doesn't tell us there's 40 days, but we know the story or at least many of us do. And he doesn't have any of the, uh, he doesn't have very much of the narrative at all. No, he has almost none of it. No, you do get none of the content. Right. Mm -hmm. It's just the fact of it. But what Mark does sort of give you the, and Matthew does this too. It's there in the other gospels, but the sheer proximity that Mark posts it to the baptism, I think is really telling because at the baptism, a number of things happen. I mean, if you, if you go with Maximus of Turin, he cleanses the water and sacramentalizes it in a certain sense. But what else happens? 
you have the father, the voice of God, the father says, you are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, which is God, the father quoting scripture. He's quoting the old Testament. And this Mm. is what David spoke over his son, Solomon at Mm. his coronation. Mm. So these are coronation words, not that Jesus wasn't always king of Kings, but but this is is declaring publicly declaring in a certain sense, maybe only for John the Baptist. We're not sure who heard it, but there's a public declaration of his kingship. And we talked about politicians a minute ago. I feel like every every political speech or slogan that I've ever heard has some is some variation of, I mean, what do politicians say? They say, I'm going to fight for you, yeah. right? I'm going to go to the big government and I'm going to fight for you and I'm going to fight for the little guy and do all the things, um, which I'm sure is what all of the would-be messiahs of the time are saying. Like, yeah. I'm going to fight Rome for you and I'm going to take down Pilate for you and et cetera, et cetera. But what does Jesus do? As soon as the coronation, the, the public kingship happens, he goes to the wilderness. And in, in the Jewish mindset, the wilderness was believed to be sort of the domain of the evil one. Because mm-hmm. the wilderness was scary. You could get eaten by an animal or a bandit could get you and rob sure. you. It was, it was a scary place. And so it was understood to be the domain of the evil one. And so as soon as his coronation is announced, what does Jesus do? Go to the home, so to speak. It's not really his home. But he goes to fight the fight. He goes to pick a fight in a very real sense. I mean, there's no other way to read this that Jesus having received this public authority, goes to pick a fight with the evil one. Uh, Some of the fathers of the church, some of the saints said that he goes into the fight like a boxer who ties his arm around his back. Because, I mean, I'm not good at fasting, JD, and I get get really grumpy. And, you know, by by 9 o'clock in the morning on a day that I'm fasting, I'm... I'm already a jerk with everybody. I mean, the, the amount, to imagine 40 days of that, I was right. trying to teach this to my kids and talk about what Lent was. And they're like, can you imagine fasting for 40 days? And they, they couldn't. But, you know, the the physical weakness, not to mention spiritual and mental. I mean, Jesus didn't have his full humanity. Yeah. So to go into a fight and to pick a fight that way was, I mean, this is one of the greatest examples par excellence of, of Mark demonstrating the authority Jesus right, has. Right. This is where the authority lies. Yeah. But it's not a defensive measure. It's him going to the fight. Yeah. He's going to pick a fight because right. of what he's going to demonstrate in the rest of the Gospels. Would there have been an understanding for the audience of the that the sort of the spiritual fight in which Jesus entered was one that was fought with fasting? I mean, like, would that have been understood? Like, we, we would think about that, like, if you want to fight the devil fast. But would that have seemed totally outlandish? He is, I think, recasting what fasting is. That's what I was trying to get at, right? I, I think that's... I'm hesitant because maybe there was a, a school of thought that thought otherwise. But you fast when someone dies. Mm-hmm. And there was a period of mourning. And mourning and fasting always go hand in hand, which is why in the Jewish tradition, there are two different months that are fasting months, right? The times that you fast are the times that we're remembering when the temple was destroyed. The temple mm-hmm. was destroyed twice. And so there's two different months that we fast in remembrance of the temple because the temple was so stinking important to the Jewish people that they humanized it. It was considered like a member of the family. And so you fast when the Babylons destroyed it and when the Romans destroyed it. Mm. This is modern Judaism. Um, and those are the two fasting times. And so when Jesus, so where, where we're actually headed in chapter two is this question about fasting because there comes a point when we get to chapter two of Jesus's disciples not seeming to be into fasting, which tells me that when this story is happening in chapter two, it's during one of the fasting times of the Jewish calendar. Uh And Jesus's disciples don't seem to be doing that, Uh which maybe it's on direct orders from Jesus. That's not really clear. But what Jesus through this is subtly pointing to is, I mean, 
you don't fast when the family member who you're mourning is actually present oh, with you. Oh, that's what... So, okay. So you're fasting over the temple, which is not explicitly stated, uh-huh. but in Jewish mindset, they would know this. Right. But what is Jesus saying about himself? I'm the temple. Right. I am the... Pre- they're, they're fasting because the presence of God abandoned us and they and he left us. Right. And we it was like a death in the family. Right. Now Jesus is saying, you can't fast because the presence of God is back and there is a new temple wow. among you. Okay. Again, he will be more explicit about that later on, uh-huh. but that's what's going on. Okay. But what he's doing, again, is... Maybe he's recasting the question of fasting, but that does make me wonder about the fasting in the wilderness because what is Jesus doing? He's going to enter into all of this conflict... Not only with Satan, not only with demons, not only with nature and storms that seem out to get him, but with a world that's going to reject him and Jewish leadership and a culture that he exists in that's going to want to kill him and reject his message. And I wonder if part of the battle that he's going into begins with a a grief and a mourning over the surety of the rejection of what he's doing. There is a sort of death in in the way that he's going to be received by parts of his own family. In between then, we we begin to get the inklings of the conflict that Jesus is going to enter into, right? So people are approaching him. He will have some healings on the Sabbath day, which is going to ruffle a lot of feathers uh, and raises a bunch of new questions about the nature of the Sabbath and the nature of the law. One of the things that we'll see as we go through the rest of the Gospel of Mark is there are a number of different groups that emerge that are names probably most of us have heard, but maybe we don't know a lot about. He interacts with a group called the Scribes. Mm interacts with a group called the Pharisees, Mm -hmm. and he interacts with a group called the Sadducees, although those are less often. Sometimes they're called the Herodians. These groups are all different attempts of dealing with the the world of Israel in a time of darkness, right? Of the fact that we've lived for a really long time now. It feels like God has abandoned us. He has not returned to the temple yet, and we don't understand why. The Sadducees, also called the Herodians, I think there's overlap at least between the two groups, were a group of Jewish people that said, you know what? We think everything's fine. We don't really need to worry about that Isaiah stuff or that Malachi stuff because you know what? Things are good enough, right? Caesar is not the best. Pilate's not the best. Herod's not great, but he's giving us nice cushy jobs. He keeps us safe. You know, we're all, we all have food on the table for the most part. So everything's fine. We don't need to pine after some reforming of the cosmos that we want God to do. It's okay. Everything is good. Maybe this is how God wants it. The Pharisees show up to counter them and to say, no, that's, Terrible. That's BS. This is not the world that God wants. You are in line with pagan kings and emperors. You are working with and for the enemy. So we're going to call you out at every step of the way. That sounds good. Pharisees are by far the closest to the mindset of Jesus himself. Because the Pharisees were people who had the right idea, I think. The Pharisees come out of the time of the Maccabees. Mm -hmm. So in the time of the Maccabees, about a couple generations prior to this, they were occupied by a different power. They were occupied by the Greek Empire, right? Mm -hmm. And the Greeks had made it illegal and and punishable by death to practice the Jewish faith. And so a group of brothers called the Maccabees said, no, we're not going to take it anymore. We're going to fight back. So they rally a group of people that become known as the Zealots. Mm -hmm. They fight. They win. Mm -hmm. They don't defeat the whole empire, but they gain a sphere of independence for uh, the Holy Land. Yeah. Everybody parties. Everybody's super excited. Nobody can believe it. But then the Pharisees let the power, not the Pharisees, the uh, Maccabees let the power go to their heads. And as time goes on, I mean, they're the celebrities because they did the unthinkable. One of them declares himself the high priest. Mm. He was not in the lineage of the high priest. He was not a son of Aaron. One of them makes himself de facto king. And they basically let this 
celebrity and power go to their heads. The group that emerges out of that, which is then known as the Pharisees, are come out of the group that were probably known as the Zealots, the ones who fought with them. Um, but everybody kind of splinters after that. And there's a group of Jews who say, well, we got to keep fighting. We just got to keep taking up the sword because that's how we did this. And then there's another group that basically says, well, maybe we should do it more through some prayer and, and, and reflection on scripture and adherence to the covenants. And they're like, no, we just want blood. Yeah. So they kind of separate. And then once the Maccabee brothers or the descendants of the Maccabee brothers take power that was not due to them, the remaining faithful ones, what were the, uh, the Hasidim at, at, at one point, they come out and they say, no, th- this is ridiculous. Like, we're not going to do this by the sword. I mean, there's a time and a place for war, but we're not going to keep doing this. And it's wrong for us to assert power and authority that's not ours. We are going to hold their feet to the fire. And they eventually will become the Pharisees. But the Pharisees have this problem of recognizing that, well, it's been a long time and God's presence hasn't come back yet. And if God's presence left us in the first place, it was because we were not faithful to the covenant. Mm-hmm. We weren't faithful to the Torah. And all we know is that it's a few hundred years on and God hasn't come back and we are desperate for him to come. So what do we do? Well, all we know is that he left because we were unfaithful. So what do we do? Let's be perfectly faithful. Mm. And there was a desperation to it because we don't know what else to do. So let's not only not break the laws, let's create a bunch of fences and barriers around the law so that nobody can come even close to breaking the real law because you'd have to get through all these other barriers first. It's like... And again, I'm sympathetic because it's like if your child was about to fall into a swimming pool, yeah. you might put up a fence around the pool. Yeah. And if they climbed the fence, maybe you have to put a bigger fence. Right. And if they climb that, maybe you put barbed wire, right? It this is what sounds like a cultural – like if you suffer from scrupulosity and then became in charge of a culture. Absolutely right. Yeah. Absolutely right. Yeah. But again, there's a desperation to it. So yeah. the Pharisees aren't bad because – for any intrinsic reason, but they become hypocrites about their approach. Yeah. That's why Jesus calls them out. Yeah. But he, he mo- most closely aligns to them than anybody else. The scribes are sort of an offshoot of just scholars of the law. They're kind of like lawyers. They're kind of like canon lawyers. The best. They're the best. But they're, you know, but they, they're, they're the ones who are the experts. There's good scribes and bad scribes as mm-hmm. you go through the gospel, but they're the kind of nitpicky ones. So where Jesus tends to get into trouble is not because he's breaking any actual Jewish laws. He never does. Where he gets into trouble is that he doesn't interpret the nature of the law as the same as the Pharisees and the religious leaders do. This is where we get into the last thing that I'm going to mention, which will become an overriding theme for Mark, which is the theme of the messianic secret. And it's a theme that runs through the gospel because Jesus seems to... For a lot of the gospel, a lot of the gospels, but it's most explicit in Mark, he wants to keep things hidden. So Jesus will heal someone or he'll release them from a demon and then he'll swear them to secrecy. Yeah, why is don't that? Tell that, happens, that happens, you know, there's like four or five healings in these two chapters. Yeah. And that seems to happen in every single one. Which is funny because there's other stories where Jesus will tell someone, hey, go tell everybody. Right. Go tell everybody you know. I think it, it, it has to do with two things. Sometimes it's geographic. So the closer Jesus gets to Jerusalem or centers of Jewish power, the more closed-lipped he is. Mm. And sometimes when he is in regions that are primarily Gentile, that's when he tends to kind of send people free to say, hey, tell everybody. Because Mm -hmm. he's laying the groundwork for this future spread of the gospel. But when he's in Pharisee-heavy places, let's say, he wants to keep it secret. Why? Do you remember the movie The Passion of the Christ? Yes. Um, I don't really, I, I like the movie, The Passion of the Christ. I thought it was a very, very powerful movie. But I remember a long time ago when it first came out, seeing a poster. And I don't know if the people behind The Passion were behind the poster. But anyway, the poster 
had this tagline that said something like, his reason for living was dying. Mm-hmm. And I remember not really knowing at the time, but something sat weird about that to me. Yeah. Um, because that's not theologically true. And I think one of the things that the Messianic secret demonstrates is this. If all Jesus came to do was to die, he could Jesus spends it. the majority of the Gospels trying to evade death. Huh. When he was an infant, right. when they flee to Egypt, he could have died then. When they want to throw him off a cliff, you know, and went in the synagogue of Nazareth, he could have done it then. There's all sorts of times that they want to stone him or throw him off a cliff or otherwise kill him. Yeah. The more the majority of the Gospels he spends trying to evade that, which yeah. tells me he didn't simply come to die. Mm-hmm. It is the telos. It's where he's headed, obviously. But he needs to do a lot of things prior to that. So the messianic secret is Jesus saying, I have a lot more to do, not just before I die, but before I finish establishing my church. And once I establish, once he establishes the church in the gospel of Matthew, it seems clear after he gives the keys to Peter, he begins to reveal who he is in this new way and head toward the cross. But he came to establish a church. And so the messianic secret is Jesus's way of keeping the true identity, or at least the fullness of his identity under wraps because he knows that there is... We talked about this a little bit before, the, the difference between, sometimes theologians talk about the difference between the kairos moment and the chronos moment. So in, in Greek, there's two different ways of talking about time. Chronos is literally what time is it. So I can look at my watch yeah. and that's the chronos time. But then there's the idea of kairos, which is another rendering of time, which is the idea of God's appointed time. It's time for this. Again, why did Jesus come become incarnate when he did? My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. It's not my time, right? Mm-hmm. The, the, which is not strictly chronological. But this is his demonstration that his hour has not yet come. Mm. It's not my time yet. And in Jesus's perfect time, there will come a moment that he lets it all hang out and the inevitable happens and he is crucified. But that's not the whole of the gospel. The whole of the gospel is not just, it's just the cross. The whole of the gospel is the establishment of the church and an establishment of God's real presence here on earth to remind us that he has not abandoned us, that God is with us. The whole of, I know we're talking about Mark, but the whole of Matthew, we talked about Emmanuel, God with us. The last words of Matthew as well are, Lo, I will be with you always till the Mm -hmm. end of the age. The Gospels are framed around the idea of Jesus' presence, which is, of course, carried on in a very particular way in the Catholic tradition through the Eucharist. But um, when we reduce the story of the Gospels to the Passion alone, we miss all of, well, we miss the whole church. We miss the establishment and the ministry of what Jesus is doing. One of the other overriding themes of the Gospel of Mark, and you see this in those first two lines that we talked about, is geographic. Mark is bigger on geography than the other Gospels seem to be. And if you read that passage from Malachi and the passage from, from Isaiah, you get a good, I think a pretty good idea of what the gospel is supposed to be. If you asked most Catholics coming out of mass on Sunday, what does the word gospel mean? What would they say? The thing that was read. Well, what does the gospel mean? Oh, good news. Good news. Good take, yeah. oh, we all know that. Right. Which is the worst definition ever. Okay. What's the good news? Oh, it's good news. Right. Right. Yeah. And I don't think if pressed, most Catholics could give like a couple, you know, one sentence definition sure. of what is the gospel. Uh, it's the thing we heard, right? Yeah. Or it's Jesus somehow on the cruise. We, we don't know. Yeah. But Mark actually gives us a really succinct definition of the gospel by combining those two passages. He tells us that it is a road. He uses the word hodos, O-D-O-S with a breathing mark over the O in Greek, which um, we talk about the way of the cross or the way of Jesus or the way that the Messiah was to follow in Isaiah. But you and I tend to, because of our culture, we tend to think of way in terms of a methodology or, or an idea or a mindset, right? In Greek, it's not a mindset. It's not a methodology. It's literally a road. That's why Isaiah is talking about highway construction. 
What is the gospel? The gospel is the fact that God is coming back to his people. And if you want to know where to find him, you should listen for a voice that's going to be out in the wilderness. Whereas the wilderness, it's not a generic term either. It's the area to the east of Jerusalem around the Jordan River Valley. Look over there, listen for a voice, and then the Lord will appear and he is going to travel an odos, a path from the wilderness to Jerusalem, to the temple where we sought him, where he will be elevated as king. That's the gospel. That God is coming back to his people. He will start in the wilderness. He will travel a literal road to Jerusalem, go to the temple, and be enthroned as king. That's the Old Testament definition of gospel. That's the reason why all four of these books hold the title of gospel. Because they tell the story, roundabout as they might be, of Jesus showing up in the wilderness, traveling through the Galilee, preaching, teaching, healing, culminating in Jerusalem, where he goes to the temple, cleanses it, pronounces its destruction, and then mounts the cross. But I, I close on this note because this concept was so important to the early Christians. But before they were Christians, you remember what the followers of Jesus were called? No, I don't. They were originally called followers of the way. Right. That was the, the, the term Christian was given to them as a mockery. It shows yeah, up in, yeah. in Acts of the Apostles in Antioch. But they called themselves the followers of the way, the hodos. That's who they were. Mm. And I think when the early followers of Jesus thought about themselves, they're like, all right, what are the two most important roads or, or journeys in the Bible? Well, the Exodus story, right? That was the most famous journey in the Old Testament tradition, the journey from slavery to freedom. And then they overlay that on what Jesus does. The second, well, no, the, uh, the next, not the second, by far the, the bigger one, but the next chronological road was the Via Dolorosa, the way of the cross, the mm. hodos of the cross that actually began way in, in the wilderness with John the Baptist. And Jesus made this long journey and it culminated in the cross where he fell a number of times and he had his face wiped and everything else happens. So the early followers of Jesus said, that's us. We are followers of a literal path. We are on the road. Not the Jack Kerouac version, but we are actually on the road. That's our identity. And then eventually they were called Christian, which is good. But I really like the mindset and the theology and what they thought about themselves by identifying themselves that way. Yeah. That is um, that's the ethos of the whole Gospel of Mark. It's this road that they're traveling. Sunday School is a production of Pillar Media in Ed and JD Production. I'm your host, JD Flynn, and I'm joined by Dr. Scott Powell. Our producer is Kate Oliveira. In our next episode, we will talk about Mark chapters 3 through 6. The episode will include a recording of the readings from Pillar co-founder Ed Condon, but feel free to read them on your own, too. We'll see you soon. <laughs>